be seated. Again, this morning, we're so glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us, we want to let you know that we're thankful that you're here. We want to get to know you, so hang around just a few minutes afterwards and let us get to know you. This morning, uh, one of our guests, of course, is Brother Jeff Miller. And normally, when you introduce someone at the very first session, you'll give much of the information, and then at other sessions, you'll back off. But we have done it in exact reverse today, or yesterday and today. And I do want to give him a a good introduction this morning before he speaks to us. I mentioned in Bible class, if you were able to be here at that time, that he is a graduate of Freed Hardeman University. He received his uh, B.S. degree in physical science with minors in Bible, French, and mathematics. He also received a uh, uh, degree from uh, uh, the University of Texas at Arlington, as well as his master's degree from there in biomechanical engineering, and a Ph.D. in biomechanical engineering from Auburn University. While there, he also did some teaching at Auburn University, instructed some courses in thermodynamics and fluid mechanics and a lot of those other things that all of us country boys have a hard time understanding. We, we may get to see some of it in action occasionally, but have a hard time sometimes understanding. But we're so thankful that he has spent his time over the past few years in apologetics and helping us as Christians understand things in regard to science that we need to understand. It's important for us to be able to go out and talk to other people, especially those who, who dwell on these kind of scientific things or taught scientific quote-unquote things in school. And we want to be able to, to meet them with an intelligent way of talking about God. So Christians need to be informed about scientific things, and that's one of the reasons that, that we uh, wanted to schedule this seminar And he has done a lot of work there. He, of course, works with Apologetics Press in Montgomery and uh, is uh, the the main science writer there. His articles are in Reason and Revelation. If you haven't read that or uh, subscribed to that, that's something that you might want to subscribe to. Uh, He has done a lot of work with the curriculum, the Apologetics Press Bible class curriculum, uh, writer and author of books, Science and Evolution, and uh, there are copies of that as well as other Apologetics Press materials that are outside for sale as well as there are some things that are free. Uh, the things that are to the, uh, to the left of the, uh, the, the, the red sash are free. The rest of it are materials that are for sale and so you might want to look that over as you're getting ready to leave this morning. Now having said all of that, here's the important part. I truly believe that you can tell much about a person by looking at their family. Marlene and I had the opportunity last night to have a meal with Jeff and his wife Julie, and they are five children, and it was amazing. You know, we adults sat on one end of the table, the children were on the other end, and you would not know that they were even there. Uh, they were so well behaved. And I want to commend all of those children, Evie and Celeste and Davy and Campbell and uh, Quintus. Uh, of course, Quintus was a, uh, he's only seven weeks old, so uh, he is a, uh, you know, had his own schedule. But, uh, I truly commend both Jeff and Julie for the fantastic job that they're doing with their children and the children for 
behaving and, and, and being so uh, uh, showing, you know, that they are indeed uh, great, great children as well. We've had a number of topics that he's spoken about, everything from medicine to also this morning the multiverse. But at this time, Brother Jeff will discuss dating techniques, scripture, the age of the earth. Brother Jeff. So if you came expecting to hear me to talk about like romantic dating, that's a different topic. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, more scientific dating techniques in our session this morning. I appreciate very much the invite to come. I, I guess it was four years ago this summer that I was here. Uh, so it's amazing how much how many things can happen in that amount of, in that amount of time. Uh, but it but it feels like it was just the other day I was here. So appreciate being able to come back. Uh, I know you, you needed a good four years to recuperate uh, from what I treated you to. I'm sure four years ago. Uh, appreciate you being here. Appreciate the encouragement uh, that that uh, Mark and his family have been to Julie and I. Uh, and the kiddos. Okay, so if there is no God, then how did everything get here? Okay, so the atheist argues that cosmic evolution is the answer. Uh, the universe created itself. Uh, it evolved into an amazingly complex system. It designed itself, even though it has no mind to do so. All right, so there are many problems with that idea, of course, but we're going to be discussing one of those problems in this session this morning. If naturalism is true, if evolution is true, then the earth has to be extremely old in order for it to have the time that they say it would need to uh, give rise to what we have today. Uh, the latest estimate for the age of the universe is about 13.8 billion years uh, the earth being about four and a half billion years old. Now, according to the biblical model, the earth is going to be is roughly six to eight thousand years old. Uh, starting from today, uh, we have 2,000 years back to Christ, uh, another 2,000 to Abraham, and then another uh, few hundred years back to the flood based on the genealogies of Genesis 10 and 11 and another 1,600 years from the flood back to creation based on the Genesis 5 genealogy. So how is that to be reconciled with the evidences that are given for an old earth and an old universe? Uh, can this be reconciled? According to evolutionists, the scientific dating techniques that they use to date materials are a solid proof of an old earth, an old universe, and so is that true? Uh, do these modern dating methods disprove the Bible and support evolutionary thinking? Uh, well, the problems with evolutionary dating methods boil down to the assumptions upon which they are based. Uh, scientists and mathematicians have to use assumptions all the time in order to be able to solve problems and figure things out. And assumptions can be fine and good. Uh, to that end, as long as the assumptions are reasonable assumptions and have a small enough effect on the outcome of a problem uh, so as to not drastically affect the solution by that assumption and give you a false answer. So let's take a, a real-world example from engineering, a, a real-world scenario here. Let's say, that, let's say that I wanted to design a vehicle that, where I could uh, use this vehicle on a, on a one-mile strip of road, just one mile, Absolutely nobody uses this road. I've blocked it off for my use, and I've maintained that road very well. I've, re I've repaved it when necessary. I, 
I put up fences to keep animals out of the road. So I, I've tried to take everything into account to make sure that this road is clear and smooth. All right, now let's say that I wanted to design this vehicle so that I could remotely control it from this building. And this is something we can do now. And so it's equipped now uh, with uh, the necessary sensors so that I can determine its velocity and its heading at all times since I'm not going to be able to see the car from here. I'm not going to have a camera on this car. And so I develop the equations uh, that will describe the motion of that vehicle using the sensor readings that I'm getting. And these equations are critical in order for me to know that I'm making the car do what I think I'm making it do. Because uh, again, I'm not going to be able to see what's going on. All right, now in order to make my equations much simpler, I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to assume that this vehicle is always going to have 100% traction. Okay, so it's not going to skid and slide at all. And so I check the weather report and I see that skidding conditions are very unlikely. Uh, and so the assumption, this would probably be a reasonable assumption. It's not going to cause a significant amount of error in my equations. And yet it's going to simplify my equations significantly. We're just talking about a one-mile strip of road. And so there may be a few rocks in the road that will give me a very small amount of error. But by the end of, of that one-mile strip of road, I can guarantee with a very high degree of accuracy that I, I, I know where this car is going to be. It's still going to be on the road at the end of this one-mile strip. All right, now... Let's say I design the same car with the same assumptions for off-road use out in the middle of nowhere. No, no road, and yet I want to try to control this car from here, and I make the assumption that there's 100% traction. There's no skidding or sliding around. All right, now how likely is it that I'm going to know exactly where my car is at the end of this one mile of driving? All right, it's very unlikely now, okay? So the assumptions have to be made in science but those assumptions have to be made very carefully or your end result is going to be way off. Invalid assumptions can cause you to draw conclusions that are not in harmony with the actual evidence. All right, now the problem with all modern dating techniques that are used by the evolutionist uh, community are all based on unreasonable assumptions. The main one being what we call uniformitarianism very fundamental assumption of evolutionary thinking and all of its dating techniques ever since James Hutton suggested the idea the present is the key to the past when you're examining geological features. Uh, the McGraw-Hill Dictionary of Scientific and Technical Terms defines it, the concept that the present is the key to the past, the principle that contemporary geologic processes have occurred in the same regular manner and with essentially the same intensity throughout geologic time and that events of the geologic past can be explained by phenomena observable to today. So whatever processes going on today are the same as they have always been throughout the past. There's never been something in the distant past that doesn't happen today like a global flood. That couldn't happen. That's not something that happens today. So we make an assumption. Only whatever you see going on today has always been the case. That's uniformitarianism. Now, without that assumption in place, you're not going to be able to date the earth. Because if you have a major catastrophic event, that can significantly corrupt things really quick and make things look old that aren't really old. So this is a, a fundamental assumption in evolutionary dating techniques. Now, the question is, is that a reasonable assumption in dating the earth? Is that, can we know whether that's a good assumption or not? Yeah, we can know. 
whether that's reasonable or not. Let's take a couple examples, real-world examples. Geologists say that water from 41% of the nation is draining into the Mississippi River Delta. Uh, as the Mississippi River rolls along down towards the Gulf of Mexico, it picks up dirt and sediment along the way. And supposedly over thousands of years, the Mississippi River has been depositing fresh water and sediment along the Louisiana coastline. Approximately 500 million tons of sediment are dumped into the Gulf of Mexico by the Mississippi River every year. Okay, let's do the math and think in terms of uniformitarianism. If uniformitarianism is true, then the geological processes and rates that we see going on today are the same as they always have been throughout the past. So if the earth has been around as long as the evolutionists say it has, then why isn't the Gulf of Mexico completely filled up with dirt and sediment? It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. Uniformitarianism doesn't work. When you actually get into the field and study this, uniformitarianism doesn't work. It's an unreasonable assumption. Catastrophism, on the, hand, on the other hand, is a different way of looking at geology. According to the McGraw-Hill Dictionary of Scientific and Technical Terms, this is the idea that most features in the earth were produced by the occurrence of sudden, short-lived, worldwide events. And so this is the approach at interpreting geologic phenomena that is, what you'll find is, is much more reasonable when you actually get into the field. This is the contention of the creation model. Second uh, Peter 3, which was our, our uh, scripture reading this morning, notice what it says. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So Peter discusses individuals who were going to have a uniformitarian mindset towards life. All things continue as they were from the beginning. And notice that Peter responds to these individuals by pressing the fact that things have not always moved along in the same way since the beginning. Present events are not a key to the past, as uniformitarianism suggests. Using uniformitarian thinking when viewing life and viewing the earth is not going to be accurate because it doesn't take into account events that have happened but which don't happen regularly, like catastrophic events. And notice as an example of why uniformitarian thinking isn't correct, Peter alludes to the greatest catastrophic event ever recorded in history, and that is the global flood of Noah's day. So the creation model would support the catastrophic view of, of the universe, and it doesn't require assumptions like uniformitarianism, and it will account for catastrophes beyond even just the global flood to try to explain what we see in geology. But, you know, the implication to the catastrophic approach at interpreting geology is that there is no way to get an accurate reading of the age of anything that's very old except through divine revelation. Uh, but so be it. I mean, if that's where the evidence leads, that's where it leads. And it would be unreasonable to accept any other option that is not in harmony with the evidence. Now, on a positive note, many scientists have started seeing the light on this issue and backed away from a strict uniformitarian mindset. Uh, in fact, the, for example, the effects of volcanic eruptions and what these do, these catastrophic events, have cast serious doubt in many scientists' minds over this idea of uniformitarianism. It's long been believed, for example, that the Grand Canyon was the product of millions of years of slow carving by the Colorado River. We looked at that yesterday in, in a session. It's assumed by geologists that the Colorado River has been rolling along uh, as it does now 
for millions of years using uniformitarian principles. Uh, we looked at evidence against that, but here's another one. On March 19, 1982, there was a small eruption at the summit of Mount St. Helens. It caused a massive mud flow, and within one day, a 20-mile-long, 140-foot-deep canyon was carved, shown here on the screen. And so this occurrence completely destroys uniformitarianism. If uniformitarianism is true, it should have taken tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years for this little stream to carve this canyon out. It's been called the Little Grand Canyon because it appears to be a 140th scale model of the Grand Canyon. And yet we know this was carved rapidly in a single event in one day, a major catastrophic event. The Lake Missoula flood is a well-documented flood from the post-flood uh, post ice age. Water breached an ice dam and 500 cubic miles of water were released and destroyed uh, within two days, 16,000 square miles of terrain and cut through solid rock. I showed you that yesterday. Also, we have rapid petrification. For years, it's been assumed that the process of petrification is one that takes millions of years to complete. But more and more scientific evidence is coming to light, which proves that the rate of petrification can be significantly altered by, guess what? catastrophic events. Scientists have discovered that the rate of petrification can be significantly altered by these kinds of things. Uh, 2004, for example, five Japanese scientists published their research on petrification in the secular journal Sedimentary Geology. Uh, they had been studying this mineral-rich acidic water from the explosion crater of the Tatayama volcano in central Japan. Water runs over the edge of this volcano as a, as a waterfall, and some wood had fallen into the path of this water, this mineral-rich water, and they discovered that the wood had petrified within 36 years. And so they decided to conduct further experiments, and they found that silica petrification can occur in just seven years. Uh, other proofs of catastrophism, we have polystrate fossils. These are fossils that cut across multiple layers of strata, like this tree or this one. Now, if those layers that are uh, covering up this tree do in fact take millions of years to form, then think through the implications of that. You'd have to argue that this tree was sticking up out of the ground with its roots already dead and lithified for eons without decaying this tree before it was finally completely covered up with the sediment that is around it now. All right, now that's impossible. But if the sediments around this tree were actually deposited rapidly, on the other hand, it explains the evidence. But granted, it takes some kind of catastrophic event for that to occur. A major mudslide transporting this tree and stopping there, and then, then the, those layers around it lithifying it. Besides uh, discovering trees that are poly, polystrate fossils, uh, catfish have been discovered, calamites, uh, and here's probably the most famous, a uh, 80-foot-long baleen whale uh, standing on in in a diatomaceous earth quarry in California. So this one example of a polystrate fossil refutes the claim that sediments take millions of years to lithify. Uh, the uniformitarianism just doesn't work. I also showed you some of, some of my work out in, in Wyoming yesterday where we've got in one small area of land there, over 18,000 dinosaur fossils have been excavated. Uh, what are estimated to be the remnants of some 15,000 dinosaurs. 
Okay, now that is not some uniformitarian process. Something wiped out many dinosaurs, and as I showed yesterday, ripped them apart, transported them to this area, and dumped them. Uh, that is not a, something that would occur today. It's not something we see. This is a catastrophic event. Uh, many fossils show evidence of rapid burial, catastrophism, as would be predicted by the flood model. Uh, notice this fish is in the middle of eating his dinner when he gets wiped out by something. Uh, this ichthyosaur is in the middle of giving birth when it was rapidly buried by some kind of catastrophic event. Uh, so uniformitarianism, this is just a small, uh, just a hem, touching the hem of the garment on this. Uniformitarianism doesn't cut it. When you've got major natural cat uh, catastrophes, they're seriously going to affect your dating uh, assumptions. Catastrophes like local floods, besides the global flood, volcanic eruptions. Thankfully, some geologists, again, are coming around on this issue. I was reading a geology textbook a couple years ago, and, and at the beginning they say, okay, we used to, people used to believe in catastrophism in a global flood, and that's just crazy. We don't believe in that garbage anymore. And then we believed in uniformitarianism, and now we know that doesn't really cut it either. So we kind of believe in a hybrid now. Because, uh, you know, as I showed yesterday, one of the main uh, beliefs that people have now about the, the extinction of the dinosaurs is a meteorite that hit 65 million years ago, wiped out all the dinosaurs and 75% of all the species on the planet. Uh, well, guess what? That's not a uniform process. That is a catastrophe that, notice, doesn't happen today. Okay, so, so they are coming to acknowledge, okay, catastrophism actually does explain the evidence in many cases. But by and large, they're going to hold on to uniformitarianism as much as they can because all of the dating techniques are based on this basic, um, this basic assumption. If uniformitarianism is false, the dating techniques are false. And so they're going to hold on to this. Uh, if processes today aren't the same as they have always been, then there are no reliable ways to date the earth. Now, once this assumption of uniformitarianism is shown to be inaccurate, the entire grounds for dating anything is millions of years old fails as well. Uh, and yet the evolutionists say, well, we've got these dating techniques, these uh, radiometric dating techniques for inorganic materials. We've got carbon dating for the organic materials. Okay, so I want to go ahead and look at, at the fundamental assumptions that undergird these ideas. Uh, give you a little bit more information about these so that you can see uh, what's going on and, and other bad assumptions that are corrupting their results on this. Second law of thermodynamics indicates the universe is running down or running out of usable energy. Matter and energy it's, themselves are breaking down. Uh, and, uh, and we also know radioactive isotopes break down. They decompose into other elements over time. The breakdown appears to be at constant rates today. At least that's always been the assumption. Uh, we know potassium breaks down into argon, uranium into lead, rubidium into strontium. Uh, the beginning element is called the parent element, and the element after decomposition is known as the daughter element. Scientists are able to measure the rate at which the parent isotope decays into the daughter isotope with an amazing degree of accuracy. The problem is these dating techniques, they know, are more and more inaccurate in telling ages the farther back they're trying to predict age. In other words, they become less and less likely to be predicting the actual age of a material the older the object appears to be. And one of the reasons they know this is that when they'll measure the age of, say, a single rock using different dating techniques on the same rock, the dating techniques never agree with each other on the age of the rock. They're always off by millions of years, every time. 
And so they're quick to just say, well, there must be an assumption that's violated, and they move on. And most of the time, you don't use multiple techniques on a single rock. It's a very expensive process. So one technique is used and assumed to be right. But any time they use multiple techniques on the same rock, it's always wrong. That tells you there's something wrong with the assumptions here. And so, again, assumptions oftentimes have to be made in science, and they can be fine and good. But you have to be careful with the assumptions you're making. In this case, they're assuming uniformitarianism. If uniformitarianism is thrown out, the dating techniques don't work. Here are three fundamental erroneous assumptions that come down to this uniformitarian mindset that are significantly affecting these dating techniques. Take, for example, the uranium-lead dating technique. Uranium decays into lead over time. What are the assumptions that go into getting an age for a piece of uranium? Number one, the nuclear decay rates of these elements have been constant throughout history. In other words... Nothing has occurred in history which could have sped up the decay rates of these elements over a brief period of time. Okay, that assumption is made. Number two, no daughter element existed in the specimen you're measuring at the beginning of its decay. Okay, so in other words, the dating technique assumes the rock you're measuring that's now got both parent and daughter element in there, it was originally only parent, like uranium in this case. So an assumption is made about the initial condition of this rock. All right, number three. The parent-daughter isotopes have not been altered by anything except radioactive decay. So in other words, you've got this rock. It's got some, some of the parent, some of the daughter element in there. They assume the amount of the elements that are present in this rock have never been affected by any outside elements. Okay, so for example, you never had a, some kind of lava flow that, or some kind of mud flow that took material from elsewhere and added it to this sample or, took, or moved some away, some kind of leaching or something. They assume, in other words, that this is a closed system over millions of years. Nothing's ever tampered with that. All right, now probably common sense is going to tell you already, those are some pretty grandiose and presumptuous assumptions and the older a rock is supposed to be, there's more, there's more time these assumptions have, have been violated at some point. So let's take, take a look more closely at these assumptions, just to think through very simply. Are these really reasonable? Okay, so imagine for a moment you're walking down the sidewalk, and in front of you in the middle of the walk is a pail of water, and it's halfway filled with water. Okay, and you notice that there's water all around the base of this pail. Okay, so you look a little bit closer, and along the base of that bucket, you notice there's a small crack that is causing a slow leak. Okay, so you decide you're going to do a science experiment, and you're going to see if you can figure out when that pail was filled with water and how long it's going to take for it to be empty. Okay, so you take out your trusty ruler, and you measure how many inches of water are in that pail, and you find it's six inches. And so then you continue on your walk, and on the way back home 30 minutes later, you stop and you measure the water level again. Now it's not six inches, it's five and a half. Okay, so you decide, all right, well, this, the pail is leaking half inch every 30 minutes, so that's one inch every hour, and you measure the height of the pail, and you find, hey, it's 12 inches tall. So you do the math, you're feeling pretty proud of yourself, you're feeling pretty scientific, and you feel, okay, this pail must have been filled with water six and a half hours ago, it's going to be empty in about five and a half hours, right? So you've done this science experiment. Now, there's problems with your experiment. You've made some bad assumptions. Number one... You didn't know that, number one, the in, initially the pail was not completely full. It only had 10 inches deep, 10 inches of water, when it was filled. 
10 hours ago. Number two, the bucket of water was significantly affected by an outside force. Nine hours ago, a dog came and jumped into the pail, splashed half of the water out of there, and only left a quarter of the pail full of water. It's got only three inches of water. Now, the force of the dog hitting the bucket caused the leak hole to get bigger. It changed the leak rate of that bucket. An hour ago, the dog's owner came, back, came out and filled the pail back to six and a half inches, and then you only got here 30 minutes ago to begin your experiment, at which time the water level was at six inches due to the leak. Okay, so was your experiment valid or not? Did your assumptions corrupt the result of your experiment? You assumed the pail was completely filled. You were wrong. You assumed it was completely filled six and a half hours ago. You were wrong. In actuality, it was initially 10 inches deep 10 hours ago, and along the way, it was partially refilled. So your experiment was essentially worthless in determining anything because your assumptions were wrong. Now, radiometric dating techniques fall victim to these same fallacies. All three of the aforementioned assumptions have been empirically shown to be unreasonable and for the same sort of reasons. We've got a book called um, The Young Earth that we sell that goes into this much more in depth. It's put out by the Institute for Creation Research. But very briefly, let's, let's go through these and show you some of, of uh, what we're finding in modern science. Concerning this first assumption... This is the equivalent of assuming that the crack in the bottom of the pail of water always remained the same size, even though the dog's activity actually caused the crack to expand. Now, similarly, is it reasonable to conclude that the nuclear decay rates of the elements have remained constant throughout history? Until relatively recently, the answer was yes. Scientists had tested these decay rates with a, under a myriad of conditions, and they found that these decay rates appear to be constant. Now that assumption is having to be looked at again, and here's a couple examples of why that is. For example, a team of geologists known as RATE conducted extensive and notable research on this very idea, investigating the contention that the nuclear decay rates have, have not been constant throughout history. They studied several zircon crystals from a drilling site in New Mexico. Zircons are considered to be some of the oldest minerals on the earth, based on evolutionary thinking and are very hard, very resistant to deteriorating. They're also thought to be able to preserve their contents well, which makes them safer from being contaminated. So using evolutionary dating techniques, the crystals were found to be one and a half billion years old. Now the problem is that when they did a content analysis of the zircon crystals, they found large amounts of helium in the crystals. So within zircon crystals a portion of the zirconium atoms will be replaced by uranium. So as uranium-238 decays into its daughter element, lead-206, alpha particles are released that combine with nearby electrons, and that forms helium. And that helium can be found then in the zircon crystals. So by evolutionary dating techniques, the zircons that the rate team studied revealed billions of years worth of decay from just measuring the amount of daughter products in the crystals. But the helium concentration contradicts that because helium is known to behave as a slippery material. Helium atoms are, are small, they're in constant motion as gas particles, and so they're very hard to contain. They diffuse quickly. Uh, you think about a helium balloon. Uh, the helium escapes from that balloon, right? And we assume it's coming through the knot at the bottom, but that's not where it's coming from. It's actually going through the rubber. 
Uh, helium just diffuses very easily through things. Now here's the problem. If the rocks are as old as the dating techniques suggest, they're billions of years old, then there shouldn't have been such high concentrations of helium. It should have long ago been diffused from the crystals and been released into the atmosphere. So high concentrations of helium can only be sustained for a few thousand years without significant diffusion. So the presence of high concentrations of helium illustrates the fact that at some point or points in the relatively recent past, the nuclear decay rate of uranium must have been accelerated, producing larger amounts of helium that haven't had time to diffuse yet. So helium concentration in the zircons indicate a young age. Evolutionary dating techniques indicate an old age. So how do you reconcile this? Well, by understanding that dating errors are inevitably going to occur if you date rocks under the assumption that nuclear decay rates have always been constant. If, if natural catastrophes, various conditions can rapidly speed up decay rates, then it can give the illusion of old age to a rock using, using uniformitarian thinking, uh, and yet they, they not actually be that old. Then there's the 2009 research that was announced by CERN. This is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. This is uh, where the Large Hadron Collider is that discovered the Higgs boson particle, the God particle. Uh, the research indicates that the decay rate of thorium-228 in water increased by a factor of 10,000 as a result of ultrasonic cavitation. All right, so when you've got this particular condition, I mean, not only was the decay rate sped up, it was sped up about 10,000 times faster. And guess what, that, what the flood would have been like? It would have been producing ultrasonic cavitation in water, exactly what we would predict to be the case. 2010, there was research done by a team at Purdue that's discovered that radioactive decay rates vary with the sun's rotation. Now, these rates are supposed to be unchangeable. So the fact that they can change at all is significant. And it implies we don't know nearly as much as we think we know. Concerning the second assumption, no daughter element existed in the specimen at the beginning. So looking back at our water bucket illustration, this would be the equivalent to assuming that this bucket of water was initially completely filled with water, and we know that wasn't the case. All right, so is, in the same way, is it reasonable to assume that every rock on the earth was initially completely composed of a parent element? How in the world could a person know that scientifically, and how likely would that assumption be? Uh, Parent-daughter elements from totally different sources can easily come together in some kind of flow that will make one rock that has both parent-daughter elements at the onset of this rock's decay and subsequently giving the appearance of age to that rock. And so this assumption has been tested many times. It's been shown to be inaccurate. Okay, how so? Well, we have rocks forming today from, for example, volcanoes. And so scientists can know the exact age of many of these volcanic rocks from the past few hundred years because they know exactly when the volcanic eruptions occurred. Historically, they created those, those rocks. Okay, so what's going on? What they end up finding is whenever they date the rocks, they'll be millions of years old, and yet they know the rocks are only decades old. So what's going on? Well, the dating techniques are assuming that the rock was initially completely composed of parent elements. Many times it's not. So again, when you think in terms of a global flood, you can see why that assumption would be terrible as well. And of course, another factor that the bulk of the scientific community wouldn't even consider, but we have to consider from a biblical perspective, is that rocks could have initially been created already comprised of a number of elements rather than everything being parent elements. If so, then many things would have an immediate appearance of age from the moment they were created. 
All right, someone says, wait a minute, why would God create something with an appearance of age that isn't actually old? Okay, wouldn't that be deceptive of God to do that? Well, you know, you could maybe make that argument if, you know, if you assume, number one, that, that God would have created something with that in mind to try to deceive us, but he then turned around and told us exactly what he did. So there's no deception going on here. So God may have actually created daughter elements directly in the very beginning because of their usefulness to uh, the universe in various ways. It's quite an assumption to claim that all the rocks were initially completely comprised of parent elements. You know, the biblical model is clear that God created a mature universe. Okay, we've got light from stars that are here that we can see that are apparently from stars that are billions of light years away from us. Meaning, at today's rates, using uniformitarian thinking, it took billions of years for that light to get to us. And yet Genesis 1.14 said that God created these stars for humans to be able to tell signs, seasons, days, and years, which implies the light's already here from the moment he creates them so that humans could use that. Uh, Adam was created with an immediate appearance of being a grown man the very first day he's created. He's already able to tend the garden, right? Genesis 2.15. He's able to have dominion over the earth, Genesis 1.28. He's able to understand God's prohibition about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.16 and 17. He's able to name the animals, Genesis 2.19 and 20. Right? He, he's not an embryo or something. He's already fully grown and, and has a capabilities uh, that you wouldn't expect of an embryo. All of these abilities in spite of the fact that he had just been created. Uh, trees would have already been grown... And bearing fruit. Why? Well, because Adam and Eve needed the nourishment from, those, from the trees, from the fruit. Well, any of you that grow fruit trees know that's a process that takes some time, and yet it was done immediately. All right, now if you've got fully grown trees bearing fruit, they're going to have tree rings in them. Why? Because tree rings are not there just to tell us age. They provide strength to a tree as it's growing. Each one of those rings helps to sustain a larger tree. All right, so that, that eliminates using dendrochronology to try to prove that the earth is extremely old. You're not going to be able to look at the tree rings and, and, and assume that everything is extremely old from those because God would have created tree rings at the very beginning. And similarly, dating elements would have likely been present in the rocks because daughter elements can serve purposes on the earth other than just showing age. So caution has to be used in making any assumption about the initial conditions in the decay process. And concerning this third assumption, the item being dated has never been altered by anything except for radioactive decay. In other words, this assumption is we have a closed system. It's the equivalent of assuming that pail of water was never affected by anything other than the, the small leak, and yet we know a dog jumped in there. All right, so similarly, is this a reasonable assumption when we're talking about these, the elements? To assume that a rock has, has never been affected by outside forces throughout its entire existence? No water or other substance ever soaked into a specimen or, or carried part of an element away or added to it, contaminating it? Now, we know that migration of elements is a common problem today. It's known to severely affect this assumption, regardless of how much care we take in selecting the specimens we're dating. Uh, leaching is known to occur particularly in lead and uranium very easily, and yet that's a dominant method that's used today. So again, you take into account catastrophism, and you know this assumption would be horrendous. So without these assumptions in place, the Earth cannot be dated scientifically, and that bothers many scientists. 
And so they'll tend to just ignore these issues and, uh, and, and just go ahead and use the assumptions and do the best they can. But these assumptions totally destroy any attempt to date materials that are very old because those assumptions simply don't logically hold. And it's simply unscientific to ignore these issues. One other thing here about uh, carbon dating, carbon-14 dating I wanted to mention. I hear a lot of uh, mis, mis erroneous talk about this particular dating technique. Uh, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, carbon-14 dating proves that the, the earth is millions of years old, they don't even know what the secular guys are claiming on this dating technique. Carbon dating is not used to prove things are millions of years old. Uh, carbon-14 can't be used for that. It only works with organic materials. So we're talking trees and bones, things that contain carbon. So if you've got something that's totally lithified, a rock or a fossil, it's totally turned to stone, you can't date that with carbon dating. So you could date a tree that's been buried by a lava flow, but you can't date the lava itself with this technique. So, so carbon dating can't be used to try to prove the earth is millions of years old. They'll turn to the radiometric dating techniques like, like these others that I've been mentioning to try to do that. Uh, since the half-life of C14 is only 5,730 years, that means half of all the C14 in any specimen you're dating, half of that decays into nitrogen-14 in 5,730 years. And notice that's assuming constant nuclear decay rates, which we were, I would say these were, they were beyond about 1,000 B.C., they were ramped up. And they get more and more by the time you get back to the flood, where they're extremely, way higher than they are today. But after another 5,730 years at that rate, another half of what's remaining is, is left and so forth. And again, assuming a constant decay rate. After about 50,000 years, there's essentially no C14 left for us to be able to detect. That is, we don't have the technology to detect it anymore. The levels are so low. And so the dating method isn't even used for dates that old. It's generally trusted for dates that are about three to 4,000 years old, which aren't a problem for the biblical model. So notice C14 is potentially useful in archaeology, but not in geology and paleontology, where they're speaking in terms of millions or billions of years. And so notice that even in archaeology, though, C14 is often very suspect, even among the secular guys, when talking about dates beyond three to 4,000 years ago. It's notable that they admit this. Uh, for example, archaeologist Brian Fagan of UC Santa Barbara, he just comes out and says, carbon dating is not infallible and general single dates should not be trusted. And one reason that it's notoriously imprecise and suspect beyond just a few thousand years is due to, guess what, its foundational assumptions. Uh, like those we've mentioned that are inherent in all the evolutionary dating techniques, as well as some of the specific ones for carbon-14 that relate to an assumption about the Earth's magnetic field in the past and the production rate of C14. They assume that the, uh, that the ratio of C14 to C12 in the atmosphere has remained constant throughout history. They now reject that, that assumption themselves. So they try to rectify that problem by calibrating the ancient C14 to C12 ratios using tree ring dating, uh, but they have to do that through what's called cross-dating, where dendrochronologists will successively overlap tree ring patterns from living and dead trees back into history and try to get a tree history from that. And yet that's known to be notoriously imprecise and often subjective even, because we, we have trees today in the same forest that don't always have the same tree ring patterns, because this is a complex 
uh, equation involving the distance a tree is away from its water source, sunlight direction as it's hitting the tree, the soil nutrients wherever the tree is, storm patterns. Again, these are all issues uh, when if, you, if you're thinking in terms of catastrophic events like the flood and the post-flood ice age, that is going to significantly affect uh, any, any of these assumptions that go into carbon dating. Well, there's many other problems I could talk about in uh, these dating methods. I could give you several dating techniques that I'm looking at right now that actually help to show the Earth must be much younger. I'm going to give you one of those for the sake of time. I go into this more in depth in, a, in a other material. This is uh, one area, uh, one dating technique that shows that the Earth cannot be as old as it is. Uh, we could look at moon recession and the Earth's magnetic uh, field and helium in the Earth's atmosphere and several other things. Well, this, this is probably my favorite one in the area of population statistics. Evolutionists believe humans have been on the Earth for some two to three million years and using at least the genus Homo has been. So using statistical equations, we can get an estimate of how many people should be on the Earth if that were true. So given very conservative estimates where you're accounting for disease, war, famine, and so forth, and also assuming that humans have been on the earth just one million years rather than two to three million years, there should be 10 to the 2,000th power people on the earth today. I don't know if you have any clue about how big that number is. To try to grasp that number, consider that the known universe is, is 28 billion light years in diameter. So if you took miniature humans, three feet tall, with narrow shoulders, and you squeezed them into the universe like sardines, you could squeeze 10 to the 82nd power people into the universe. Now notice that leaves quite a few humans that are left. A ridiculous number. In fact enough to completely pack 10 to the 1,918 other universes just like ours, to completely fill up that many more universes. And remember, these are based on the Earth just being around for a million, for humans being around a million years, not two to three million years like the evolutionists suggest. All right, so if it's argued, well, there just couldn't be that many people because there's a lack of resources, and so all those extra people would just die off somewhere around 50 billion, because they say that's the Earth's capacity. Okay, then there should be evidence that that capacity was reached long ago, and there should be billions upon billions of hominid fossils that prove that contention. And yet they come out and say, we've actually, we, we, we can barely fill up a coffin with what we found so far. Okay, so this just doesn't work. Uh, there's no evidence that the Earth's human population has been anywhere near capacity. The mathematical gymnastics that have to be done to try to make this work. But if, on the other hand, we adjust our calculations based on the contention that biblical creation is true, we would argue about 4,300 years ago you had six people, not including Noah and his wife, that began repopulating the earth in earnest. If that is the case, there should be around 6.7 billion people on the planet, which, of course, is very close to what we actually see. Again, I could go and talk about a lot more, but for the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and wrap this session up. Bottom line is, none of the evolutionary dating techniques can be used to prove the Earth is old. They're based on bad assumptions. From the biblical perspective, when you keep that information in mind, 
the dates fit the biblical model. There's no reason to not accept what the Bible teaches about the age of the earth. I have yet to, and look, I study this stuff full time, I have yet to find any argument that can sustain an old age of this universe that always can, can fit within the biblical model without a problem. There's no reason to question what the Bible has to say about this subject. Well, as always, we want to give you an opportunity become, to become a member of the Lord's Church. In our session during, um, on the uh, multiverse in the last hour,